0: everyone and welcome to another installment of Art Blog Radio. Today we are recording from the studio of Francis Beaver, who is a local artist, musician, performer, um, person of many talents and abilities. Hi Francis. Hi. How are
1: um, you?
0: So most recently, some of you may know Frances from um, an exhibition that she had at practice back in March. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they were screening her film, Sex of the Earth. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's got a lot of other things going on, and we're going to talk a little bit about Sex of the Earth and about the history of her practice in general and some of her other interests. Um, But starting with Sex of the Earth Mm -hmm. and and that sort of way of working in general, which is, um, I mean, they're they're films, Mm -hmm. but they're films in which you use both live actors... And these sort of meticulously constructed sets out of, you know, very everyday materials (laughs) like cardboard and mylar and, you know, cans and construction paper. Um,
2: Drinking straws.
0: Yeah, exactly. So how did you happen upon that way of working or that, um, what attracted you to that particular medium?
2: Um, It was kind of just... uh what I was doing just sort of like moved into it. I mean, as far as the materials go, cardboard is free most of the time. You can find it really anywhere. Um, and I've usually worked in places like retail or, or places like that, that that have like an active recycling, you know, and so it always just um, <clears throat> on, the, on the eve of, of like making a new performance or making sets for a new performance, just like start stocking up on cardboard from their recycling and taking that. Um, it was mostly just out of like necessity because those things are easy and cheap to work with. And um, the performances that I used to do um, would really only be up for like an evening. And so we could usually uh, perform uh, with the new, with the sets at like a place and then just kind of throw them in their recycling, like afterwards, not even bring them back to the studio or back home. Hmm.
0: So then performance came before the sort of video work,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah, so <clears throat> I originally come from like a musical place, um, uh, playing in bands in, the, in Philly and writing music and stuff like that. Um, and then the things that I wanted to write songs about became a little bit larger than the sort of average kind of like songwriting or song could kind of hold. Yeah. And so I started writing stories um, and then trying to figure, out, to figure out what to do with them. Um, and after I graduated from Tyler, um, myself and a bunch of other people from Tyler started New Boon, and I decided that um, there I would just kind of get into storytelling, like live storytelling in front of an audience, and I decided that uh, my whole practice would kind of like change in that way and that if that that first performance that we did which was the off-white beast performance um, if that worked then I would keep doing that and if it didn't then I would try to like figure something else out Um, but yeah the performances predate the video
0: and then at what point did you start working with images again
2: what do you mean images I
0: mean like doing filmmaking instead of doing the sort of live Mm. uh, performance format
2: Um, that was mostly in grad school um, because uh, while at New Boon, before leaving to go to grad school, um, I had like a group of collaborators that I worked with all the time. Um, and there was a, there was like a revolving door of musicians and, and performers, but it was really a pretty set group of people um, that we would do these performances with, and then once I went to grad school, they, you know, I was just me, and so um, doing those performances was really difficult. But film allows you um, more time to kind of work on things, and so it was just easier to do by myself.
0: So going back, I did, I watched the Off-White Beast oh, mm-hmm. uh, recording of that performance, um, and I was really struck struck by the sort of the density of the narrative, you know, like it's a very elaborate, almost world that you create mm-hmm. in the process of that, telling that story, um, and it felt very similar to Sex of the Earth, actually, in that way. Um, that you're really creating these entire worlds through narrative. Yeah. What attracts you to that um, that way of working?
2: Um, <clears throat> the complexity of it is really interesting. Um, that's why I kind, of, I kind of like to say uh, that, I, that it's more like universe construction than Absolutely. sort of like narrative creation or like storytelling. Yeah. Um, because at first it was more interesting to sort of build the rules of a universe That were built that were sort of like based in allegory and and metaphor based off of like things I was experiencing in my life and the peripheral the lives of my friends and people around me Um, so I could construct these interlocking narratives that really just sort of like formed these larger worlds that spoke better to how I was kind of feeling um, at any given point um, in my life Um, And then from there, like, stories kind of, like, spawn off of them. You know, you can, like, pick things different out. And so, like, The Off-White Beast was actually part of this whole narrative project um, called Sweetheart City, Hmm. um, which was this fictional city that, like, was and was not kind of Philadelphia, or more specifically, like, West Philadelphia. The Schuylkill was the ocean. Hmm. Um, And so that was all... um, Sweetheart City was this this, um, fictional town that was... um, built out of the experiences of, like, myself and my friends and the sort of, like, musical scene that I was kind of, like, existing at the time that had a lot to do with um, uh, sort of... Uh, there was a lot of sort of, like, heartbreak and things like that, but then there was also a lot of um, allegorical drug use and drug addiction, which was kind of going, around, like, going on around me at the time. Yeah. And so that's sort of, like... If you watch Off-Wake Beast, it's pretty clear that that's kind of the subtext of it. Right. Well, even just the text of it, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, that's where that kind of, like...
0: But what, what does allegory do for you, though? Like, what is... Because it it is... Um, the worlds you create do have this... They are, but are not, mm-hmm. places that are familiar mm-hmm. to, to me, even. Mm-hmm. Um, living in Philadelphia myself, um, both in Sex of the Earth and in that story, it's like... Um, there are moments when you sort of rub up against something that's very recognizable, and then... You go to this very kind of fantastical place, yeah. you know. Um, what do you think that that way of working does? That maybe I don't know. It, like why why that sort of separation, yeah. you know?
2: Um, I guess it like kind of at first it um, it may have started kind of as escapism, or you know what happened. Like so, Offway Beast was one of the first like largest like larger narratives that I created. Um, that was um, pretty directly lifted from um, a house that I was living in and the house next to us, which was also full of a bunch of friends um, and it was actually kind of a way of so all of these people that i that I really deeply cared about and loved and knew deeply and more importantly knew deeply cared about and respected and loved me were doing all these um, irresponsible and and really selfish her like st- stupid things i added behavior you know yeah. and so i kind of i wanted a um i wanted a way to explain why people who i knew still loved and respected me were doing things um that would make that would lead me to believe the contrary you know mm. that would be, lead me to believe that they didn't love and respect me and so that's when i started to really think about um the sort of, like, the actual kind of um, operations of a monster and, and, like, what different types of monsters there are Mm. and how they actually kind of work, you know, Um, in the way that their intention is um, separated from their emotionality, separated from their behavior, you know, Mm. how those sort of things are in great unbalance, you know. Yeah. Um, And so that's where that story started to kind of come in. Um, And then bits and pieces of it were added just by um, people I knew and... Um different sort of like tidbits and, and details, so I get so i understand i mean I understand that, that like sometimes giving just sort of this the straight up um non fictional um autobiographical like information of what happened um, can do whatever stories do for people, validate them, have them uh, be able to relate to something, teach them something right. whatever all the things that narratives do for people right. um, but I wanted something. I kind of wanted to like, I wanted to play with the emotion, the emotional reality of it because it is at to- at, at the same time, um, sad and, and stressful as it is also like just kind of magical. Like it's just kind of, um, watching people, uh, allow themselves to push themselves or become something totally different while still remaining the same person is kind of a magical thing to watch, you yeah. know, like yeah. no matter if it's sad or happy or whatever, um, yeah. And so I wanted, I wanted that to be magical. I wanted the world to be a little bit um, more magical even if it was darker or,
1: you know.
0: Yeah. Um, so one thing that I, I feel like I pick up in that piece a bit, but even more so in the Sex of the Earth mm-hmm. film, um, is this question of how art affects like the material reality of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by that, I mean, for example, um, you know, in Sex of the Earth, you talk about this idea of the anti-right and Mm -hmm. you talk about satire. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, even before we get into this a bit more, could you explain to the listeners and to me to make sure that I have it right, (laughs) Uh sort of what this idea of the anti-right is and how you became interested in that?
2: Yeah, so in doing, um, uh, I guess to back up, there's like so during the last kind of presidential election um there was a lot of i mean you know everything that's come out about um about the influence of social media and um the media and the media and news and entertainment and all these different things like as long as you're familiar with that we can start there yeah um uh but that um So there's this episode of Saturday Night Live, um, and we talked about this at the coffee shop, there's this episode of Saturday Night Live that has Donald Trump on it during um, his campaign. I think it's relatively early in his campaign before things may have gotten serious or not. Yeah. Um, And SNL was really kind of, like, primed to um, be able to do something really helpful and to, like, use their skits to really kind of um, challenge him, but they didn't, you know they made, they just, they like hit it straight down the center of the road and like really just did like funny stuff and it didn't really matter. And so, um, so people watching, I mean, myself included with all of these, with all these like funny parodical news programs and things like that, myself included, like if it's still funny, then it's not that bad. Um, and it strengthens the people who are already kind of on his side because it's fun. They're poking fun They're instead of, um, actively criticizing. Um, and so, I, so I was kind of like in. The, so I was kind of. So I started with this idea that I was just like, well, what if like, what if satire like satire is so old? The practice of satire is so old, um, in terms of sort of like social balancing in a way um, and punching up and making fun of the ruling class. Um, but it's so old that I was wondering, like, what if satire was actually this um, ancient form of divination of like fortune telling, um, and that we have been using it since the um, since the W administration. Um, unknowingly of Mm. its sort of like power in that kind of way Mm. and so that its power would be so like so that its power would be to um, influence the public in a certain way and actually have the um, fantastical joke that they create through satire become the reality later on Um, and so the idea, so then um, anti-right is this kind of idea that um, Simon Critchley this um, philosopher, thinker person um proposed as the sort of basis of like how kind of jokes work like how humor works because you take something that is a that is a right that is something that is um a um, meaningful social expectation like something that we know um about our culture and in order to make a joke about it it just inverts it or it changes it you know like you have the like i think an example that he gives or something is like um the super uh wealthy person slipping on a banana, you know, like Mm. this sort of like role reversal of this person in power being, um, having their power sort of taken away. And it's funny because it creates this anti-right, which is the inverted right. 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 Um, and so I was like, well, maybe this anti-right is a kind of like kernel of magic and that like rights are all kind of made up anyways. Mm. And so if we make up an anti-right that, that kind of just becomes the reality Mm. of it. And so sex of the earth is really all about um uh, irresponsible information like hmm. human beings being conduits for information regardless of its um uh, not not being responsible with it um and being co- kind of coerced by it
0: yeah
2: maybe that's a roundabout way of yeah getting somewhere
0: yeah i mean I, cuz you also so there's this like She feels like a psychoanalyst to me, but she's she's a diviner, I guess. Um, Character in Sex of the Earth.
2: Yeah, the the satirist diviner, the fortune teller.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and it's interesting because she goes through this whole arc where she starts off... as a TV writer mm-hmm. and in sitcoms, and then becomes a television satirist for like a unnamed, I would imagine, Daily Show type.
2: Daily Show, John Oliver, yeah, yeah exactly that kind of thing.
0: Um, and then becomes a diviner because she's wrestling with these same questions of like, um, perhaps we're creating the future through satire or mm-hmm. f- telling the future through satire. Um, and then uh, in that one scene, she talks about. Um, then, sort of going into like a speculative fiction realm. Oh, at the end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so, to me, it felt like these are all, well, with the exception of the sort of sitcom mode, which is like sort of art for entertainment, um, I feel like these are all other, all of these other sort of outlets are ways in which um, people do try to actually have some effect on yeah. the world yeah, through yeah, making yeah. things, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, I think that we just... I, I guess a lot of... I mean, so I guess a lot of the ideas of um, information and misinformation and coercion really come from the sort of the very contemporary paranoia of this time um, dealing with, like, social media and all these things. Like, Facebook is only just, like, a decade old as far as, like, yeah. the general public not, you know, is using it yeah. and has no idea what it's doing and yeah. we don't know what it's doing. Um, and so, like... so, So, so her character um i mean i loved working on her character because she kind of travels through this route of um information giving through entertainment and i actually want to say about sitcoms that sitcoms are entertainment but um i think out of the whole line that she kind of travels in her career the sitcom is is probably the most conducive to um it's kind of this the best one
1: hmm.
2: because cuz like when she talks about like sitcoms basically they nudge at anti-rights, hmm. but they don't um, kind of hit you with them. Hmm. And sitcoms are a way of um, normalizing fringe ideas that people kind of need to confront right. by creating a character that can be re- re- uh, that is relatable. That the character goes through things and kind of shows you how to like like um, shows like Mod or All in the Family. Yeah. And, like Mod gets an abortion on television and like right. is countlessly divorced. You know, yeah, um, yeah but still maintains a home life and like goes through the same things that everybody else goes through. And so like, that's why sitcoms are really valuable. I mean, like even like modern family and all of these things that, um, are cheesy, but they really do kind of like, um, comfortably kind of like let the fringe flow in and like, and start or, or facilitate or champion a mainstream conversation about, um, gender queerness and about homosexuality and about all these different things and about, you know, everything that people, um, are already talking about, but, right. um, that having a sort of out in the open national conversation. Um, and then she, be, so then, she, and then she travels through periodical news programs like Daily Show and like John Oliver's, um, The Last Week Tonight or whatever it yeah. is right now. Um, which aren't quite satire because they're still kind of being themselves and they're still giving the news, but the right. news is curated specifically right. to be jokey. You know, right. like, I think that the further... Um, you skew left with, um, televised news programs in an entertainment sense. Mm -hmm. Um, they, people laugh at them and then as they skew right, people are scared of them. So Mm -hmm. like when she kind of says that line, she's like, the news on TV either has to be funny or scary. And like, I thought it was on the right side because funny is lighthearted seemingly, you know, I don't actually think it is, but, um, and so she travels through that. And then from there she, um, uh, she then goes to a um, an actual satirical satirical like pundit show like the Colbert Report right. or right now Jordan Kepler's. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen. It. I actually haven't seen it either. But I remember when it was coming out while I was writing this show, and so I was like, "Oh, I, wow, that's like really, you know, like, I don't trust that. It's seems right. so dangerous to right. me to be like taking this very live and active um, group of people that we don't understand." Um, and pretending to be them and making fun of them and by like in there just perpetuating their ideas no matter the intention Um, and then uh, so that so like as she's going through that career she's um, kind of pin, she's kind of uh, lightly abbreviating this history of like televised satire through the last like maybe 60 years Um, starting with a a less potent safe version by nudging it anti-rights to something that um, is more specific um, that jabs at more um, uh, contemporary political activities rather than cultural rights but it's still relatively safe and then into something that's very specific that's pinpointing groups of people, groups of individual people, through the satirical programs Um, and then from there sort of gets this idea that like, oh people are affected by this in so many different ways, not just that we're making fun of people and therefore Kind of keeping them down, which is not really what happens anymore right. with television and right. satire. Right. Um, so, th- and that's where she starts to realize that, like, there are all these different kind of effects that you can um, tamper with to influence people and change the outcome of their life. Hmm. Um, which leads her to to get into fortune telling, right. into like you know her her idea being that like, if a group of people is being satirized um, and sort of and made fun of. Um, then they're, then they're just being angered, you know? And yeah. they're just being angered, and they're also being handed a story about them, mm-hmm. and, they can, and they're be giving, being given representation, whether or not it's good representation or bad representation, yeah. and they can just go along and be those people, and they actually become kind of united in a way, mm-hmm. and mobilized, and then it takes the people who, um, who are kind of on the side of the satirist, who think that this group of people being satirized is um, stupid or lesser or not as good, Um, and it anesthetizes them because it's still funny and it's lighthearted and they don't have to do anything about it and it makes them feel more informed than perhaps they might actually be Um, and so they become kind of uh, perhaps more sedentary and so all these different kind of like and it also depends on um, how normally informed the viewer is on basic news things current events stuff like that Um, and how um, enfranchised or disenfranchised the sort of targeted satire, the pe- target of the satire kind of feel. And so all these different kind of moving parts can be mm. adjusted, she believes, in order to affect the future directly. And so she believes that actually, if the audience, the intended audience, is the same group of people as the target of the satire, and if they're only one person, and you can do it very specifically, then they can be coerced th- through suggestion to follow through the logical uh absurd the lot the absurd logical um kind of avenue of their conclusions you know like and so that's what she does to um the, the politician character exactly the borough council yeah they're like this young uh, agendalist borough council member who's been going to her for a, a long time um and perpetually kind of just like the satire perpetually getting into like more harder and more like niche versions of like satire right. um In order to figure out like what the hell to do with himself you know because because he's aimless and he's not stupid and he's not hateful um he's just a little he's just aimless he just doesn't have he doesn't have a purpose and i don't think people need purposes but you need them when you think you need them yeah so he thinks he needs one (laughs) right um and so that's what kind of leads him to do that and so that why that like then at the end when she's like, like she's like the fr- he's the first person that she's ever tried this like secret menu option satire <laughs> fortune telling on. Right. And then after everything that kind of happens uh, through the movie, she's like kind of um, horrified at what she's done. Um, and that's when she turns to uh, work in like optimistic science fiction writing, right. um, which was another thing that I thought like I think that through like Twilight Zone a little bit, but especially Black Mirror um, and writing and television like that that we get a lot of cautionary tales and we get a lot of, we're influenced and suggested to turn into the worst versions of our current situation because those are the stories being told to us Hmm. because it's more interest or it's more, um, Intoxicating to watch something that is dark and scary than it is to watch something that is just like kind of happy and regular Mm -hmm. So instead so like we're not given so our the collective kind of um, cultural imagination is being fed with these cautionary tales And these scary things that can happen with like if technology moves just a little further this way Mm -hmm. Um, instead of being given um, Optimism instead of being given like Like yes, this could happen but here's a way could we could turn this, happen? exactly, but here's a way we could actually make all of these things work really well and actually have them kind of uh, facilitate a much better community. But people don't watch stuff like that, and so we don't get those things. And so she sees, like, n- not, she kind of sees the error of her ways, or at least, like, I'm air quoting, by the way. Right. <laughs> she sort of sees, like, that uh, and kind of what she's accidentally done um, in this small town and decides to actually try and give people um, uh, a way out you know, give people more optimistic futures, things to aspire to be rather than to be like afraid of.
0: That to me feels so (laughs) counter to the dominant narrative around what satire does Mm -hmm. also around, I feel like speculative fiction, uh, speculative nonfiction, the sort of like Mm -hmm. doomsday prognosticating, um, is so hot right now. (laughs) Like everyone is writing speculative fiction. Yeah. Um, And also everyone has completely, seemingly at least, agreed that Mm -hmm. humor and satire are deeply radical forms and inherently sort of, um, not necessarily progressive, but like inherently uh, subversive. Yeah. You know? Right. Um,
2: Yeah. Well, so like what I was just trying to like um, offer is that it's just, it's an imperfect magic. Right. You know, it's not something that we like, we don't totally understand. Large, large scale uh, information, you right. know, Yet because it's so new to us, right? And like, um, and coercion and suggestion on such a large scale, we just don't understand it, right? And so, yeah, like, yeah, I mean, that's the 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 narrative is that like, if you punch up, uh, it equalizes, you yeah. Know? But it doesn't always, and a lot of times people punch sideways or or down, you know, or make fun of like lower class, like that's right. what's you know kind of mm-hmm. happening now,
0: right? Um, it's interesting also because. We talked earlier about how you're really creating these universes. Mm-hmm. And in a way, um, especially because you're using allegory, which feels sometimes very um, like Greek or something. Mm-hmm. And, and by that, I just mean um, it reminds me of sort of reading Oedipus or whatever I was reading sure. in high school sure. in the sense of like um, something... Sort of inescapable trajectories, Mm -hmm. you know, that people get on, yeah, um, and then have to sort of play out. Um, But in these scenarios, like, you're the person, like, you're the god who's creating these (laughs) scenarios, you know, like, Uh these things don't have to happen, yeah. You're like setting up the whole um, mousetrap, yeah, you're creating these universes and then enacting these these things. Um, That's not really a question, but it feels do you see yourself? Um, do you think of yourself in that way ever? Cause it feels watching these films particularly, yeah. it's like, Oh, Francis is like, is the omnipotent yeah. being that's off. That's always off screen in right. this situation. Only
2: on a technicality, like only <laughs> because I am like writing these and I, you know, and right. I, and I like have other people like my brother uh, and I, he, he helps me with a lot of concept stuff and we we do like kind of read throughs of um, scripts and stuff. We've been collaborating forever. Uh so it's not just me, yeah, but it okay. is, but sure, but I am like I am primarily kind of in control of these things, and yeah. they live inside my they live outside of my head, yeah. I think that no, no, the short answer is no, I don't feel like that,
1: okay,
2: um but it's but you're not the first person to say that, huh. um I think that i don't i um well, the first, i don't know, maybe I do feel like that, I don't know, I guess what I want to say is that like I love all my characters, you know like i I really love all of the um people and things and landscapes and things that like I sort of like um, bring into life very deeply and even the sort of like bad actor people um, because I kind of um, let's see how do I organize this because uh, I think that I'm not sure if I entirely feel this way about humanity but I know that like it's what the kind of it's the kind of tone that I'm trying to set in my work right now is that um, not that people don't have free will but that that people are um are just kind of like moving parts yeah. and that like um it sure feels like free will but we we coerce each other we suggest each other we move around we're like we're really more conduits of information um that then sort of like enact down pathways that like are cyclical like we do the, we do similar things over and over again with mm-hmm. new pieces of technology in any given time period essentially yeah um i hope that doesn't oversimplify the entire like no. human experience but like Um, so in that way, I guess, like, I sort of create the rules or borrow rules from the real world and just tweak them a little bit so that something can work differently and that, like, magic, there's a little bit of magic kind of running through it and then kind of, like, set them in motion. Uh, but then at the same time, I think that the use, at the same time, I'm also taking ideas and concepts that I have and turning them into people. And I guess that's where it starts to become the allegorical Mm. kind of issue. Um, Like like in Sex of the Earth, where the way that the um, geological sex of the physical earth underneath the town works, like there is a kind of magical science to that. And it's never actually, I think I wrote it this way, and I hope it comes across this way in the film, um, that it's never entirely clear whether or not that's real um but that kind of for all intents and purpose uh it is that like uh, that you that there is a cave underneath the town that holds the town's genitals that it, that's made of this kind of like um amorphous lava you know um that solidifies every time the town masturbates causing an earthquake and all of that stuff um and that the genitals are that the genitals like in case you haven't seen yet that the genitals like cool into like this like rock kind of genital formation made of lava underneath the town every time the town masturbates and then they heat back up and turn back into this like superposition where there are all forms and of genitals and no forms at all and that mm. every time that they cool and solidify it's a completely new structure, you mm. know. Um and so that like that's a story, but it was also a kind of way that I wanted to sort of transpose an allegorist size um the relationship of like gender to kind of like physical sex or uh biological sex just in the way that like again i i kept thinking about this idea of imperfect magic um and that it's an imperfect magic you know that this is sort of like gender is this kind of like right mm. that we create and lay over top of um it's not obviously it's not just influenced by biological sex but we right. at least now at least since the mid 19th century have been really tying it to that you know and trying and then trying to make biological sex and, and bodies like actually adhere to that through prosthesis and through surgery and all these things like especially with the um, intersex community like um, trying to then mat- like trying to get bodies to then match the gender expression which is insane you know like it's just right. so crazy this whole like cyclical kind of story that we keep telling and so I wanted to take that mess And like retell it through um, an ecosystem, through like or through the geology underneath this town, um, so that it plays out in a linear kind of like chronological story. But really, that um, science, that pseudoscience, um, is the is the conceptual metaphor. You know, that creates the universe that then has to have people enact on top of it to create the gender aspect of it. Yeah.
0: And is that why you use actual? people in your films as opposed to, like, I don't know, claymation or like little cardboard people or sort of whatever other options um, there are?
2: I honestly think that with my skill set and my patience, my level of patience, it's easier for me to get 15 people in a room than it is to sit down and make a little puppet move. <laughs> like, to like, I like, I grew up, like, a lot of people, like, doing little stop clay animation things with Lego people. Right. And, like You know, whatever, like, handy camera, like, you a piece of video equipment that we had laying around. Yeah. Um, and it's fun, but uh, it's so time-consuming. Um, and especially since I started doing this kind of style of, like, puppet animation, green screen stuff. Like, in grad school, like, you have... Um, you've got four months to come up with something. Yeah. And I didn't want to work on one project the entire time because I get bored. Yeah. Um, And so I it was just easier. I was like, oh, I'll just try green screen, have people do that, and then I'll just put the people kind of, like, in the set. And when I first started doing it, I, I wanted it to... I was like, maybe this will look realistic. You know, like, maybe... (laughs) Not that i would be fooling anybody. Because I wasn't trying to fool anybody. Because in grad school, at least if you go to grad school for your MFA now, it's really not... You know, like, you don't have to be perfect with it. You know, because it's a conceptual thing. Um, But I wanted... But I was like, maybe this will be real, You know, maybe it'll really look like the person is walking around on this little set. And it didn't. (laughs) (laughs) But then I was like, oh, that's fine. The people will just be fake. Like, the people will look... Like, I'll just have... Everything meet in the middle, right. in the uncanny. You know, like Absolutely. have the set be fake, have the people look fake, and everything kind of just meets in the middle so that um, it's it's not fake. And so actually that kind of like leads... The, um, I had this fear um, that I was just adding to the world of like fake stories. Hmm. Um, especially uh, like right after the election when all of the alternative facts, air quotes again, and yeah. fake news and all these things. Like not that fake news is a new... It's concept, but it has sure yeah. experienced a <laughs> resurrection. Um, when all these things happened, I was like, "I'm just flooding. I'm just flooding that whole world with even more fake garbage stories." Yeah. Um, and I talked to somebody about it, like in like a studio visit or something, and they were like, "No, these are clearly fake. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like also, that's true. you know, like this is not like." And so I I thought about that, and I was like, "No, oh, that's so important to make it so that like there's no chance this could be real, yeah. you know?" And by like the magic, but that it's so that is uncanny that it's like sits really close to reality that it can comment on it and then run back into fake world and nobody has to believe that there's really that this is really going on
0: absolutely and i think even in the there's something very effective about that and i think also there's something about the specificity of the people that feels very mm. strange but like i enjoy which is just that um i mean you create these characters mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily actors playing mm-hmm. these roles and so they just feel like people you know yeah you know you're like oh this is someone francis knows yeah you know who like has a very specific way of like grooming their hair and dressing <laughs> yeah and mm-hmm. this is how they would look if i saw them on the street yeah. you know probably yeah it doesn't it doesn't feel like you've um intervened really at all in the like the aesthetic of the individuals
2: yeah well that part is really fun to me so like there's there's um uh there's one i, I don't think i'm getting this wrong there's one actor in the hey. movie um maybe you can guess who it is but like <laughs> if you're I, anybody um uh who's like trained and and works as a, as an actor i have to pause here because uh, it'd be so unfair to just leave that a mystery uh the actor is morgan everett and she plays the fortune teller um it's a wonderful performance, and she and I have been um, collaborating for a long time, too. Um, music and performance and all sorts of things. Um, long-time friends, long-time collaborators. Um, and then everybody else is has some, like, most of them have some experience with some kind of performance, usually musical, like, some of them are bands, uh, and then some of them, you know, are friends or other artists or, who, like, the people I know, right. you know, um, with all different kind of uh, levels of experience performing or just kind of like being um charismatic people in real life um and so because i come from because like as a person growing up playing music in um the arts, you're inundated, indi- you're indoctrinated with this diy thing hmm. right because of where the music industry is because yeah. of all you know yeah all these different things and so that's where you go and so if you you're just kind of filled with this idea that like if you have if you know the people and you have your friends and you have the things, you can get together and you can do the thing, you know, like yeah. no matter what it is. And so I, whether or not I'm conscious of continuing that with that thing or it's just how I work now, that part is really fun to gather um, those people. And so like everybody in the movie is somebody I already knew right. from different parts of my social life and working life or whatever. Um, And so as I was writing, I was casting while I was writing so that I began to be able to write for the people that I was casting. And I would cast people for a specific thing, like some of them being, um, uh, like an actual performer, being like, okay, I can give you a heavy part and you can take the load because you can take direction and you can can actually kind of like become this character. But for someone else, I'd be like, you are already kind of like this. (laughs) So like... I'll just write the, I'll write the information in the way that I kind of think that you would do it or mm. you'd be able to do it loosely based off of other people. Like the pseudoscientist character is loosely based off of Steve Bannon. And then mm. the um, fracking engineer or the, like the engineer from upstate is loosely based off of Rex Tillerson. And so I kind of wanted that, that energy that play in the room, even no, though both of them don't even work in the white house anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, but that's, but the, the borough council member is not Donald Trump. Um, I want to be clear. Uh, so that part was so that part was just really fun to sort of like, it was like a bunch of puzzle pieces. Like I knew that I want the story to be like this and I know that I want the characters to kind of be like this, but here are the people that I'm working with and I love working with and I've been working with for a long time, musically or otherwise. Yeah. And here are the things that I know about them and I know that this person would be good at doing this, this person would be good at doing this. Um, and like, this, you know, like some things would just kind of work. Um, and so you could sort of like pick out a kernel of a natural behavioral... Um, affect of, of a friend, and just be like, write for it. Be like, you do this, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so, yeah. So, like, that that was really fun about that.
0: Yeah. You mentioned the the DIY ethos, particularly of the the music scene. Mm-hmm. And you have a alter ego. I would imagine. I mean, I, that's how I'm thinking of it. Sure. Francis Dauphine. yeah Yeah. Yeah. Um, is that something that predated your art career?
2: So, I or, mean, in ways, it always kind of sits next to it. I always, what, like, um, music wasn't the first thing, creative thing I did in my life, but it was the first, like, huge one that I really liked. I mean, writing and, like, I mean, I wrote poetry in middle school and it was actually a huge part of my life, and it was a big part of, like, my dad and I's relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that kind of turned into songwriting as I kind of hit, like, adolescence. Um, and... So music has just always been running through, and that's originally like what I kind of wanted to like become, you yeah. know, um, for whatever reasons people want to do that. Uh, and then I just got interested in sort of like other things. Um, so the music does predate stuff, and then it kind of took a backseat uh, for lots of reasons. One, I just started becoming more interested in doing storytelling and art, and the other is that... Like for kind of like music, Philly music scene related reasons, I wanted to move on. Yeah. Um, or to seek other communities to be part of as well. Um, so music ended up, it's kind of slowed down. You know, there was like, I had, like, I, it, I'd been doing it a long time. Um, I was really frustrated with it because it wasn't going very much anywhere. And, like, the truth is, like, I didn't try that hard to, like, really make it a reality. I worked very hard on writing songs and making the kind of music that I wanted to make, but I didn't try that hard to, like, really become a musician. And the whole kind of um, success aspect of it constantly eluded me, and I had no idea kind of how to do it. And so there was a ton of insecurity wrapped up in um, playing music and all of those different things, which is one of the reasons I wanted to kind of move on to the art world in Philly, which is uh, beautifully collaborative and, like, I mean, it has its issues because it's community, like all communities. But people were people are a lot nicer there. Um, so while I was doing that, music started to kind of take a little bit of, back, of a back seat. Um, and kind of at the same time, I wanted to like I was starting to really feel like I should do something about this like being transgendered thing. Um, and so like I was like I can mix all these things together. I can mix like music and and performance and a bit of storytelling. Um, and uh, together to create a space where I feel safe enough to kind of like experiment with a different gender identity, alternate gender identity, whatever language you want to use for it, without having to sort of commit hmm. socially to it. Hmm. And so that's what Francis Dauphine became. Interesting. And Frances Dauphine was during the time I was working on the sort of Sweetheart City universe. Um, and so I just put her there. I made her come from there. I gave her kind of a backstory. And so the first performance that we did at Fringe Arts Theater was like, an hour and a half long and it was filled with, had songs and then there were all these different kind of like monologues between that sort of explained the fantastical origin story about Francis Tophine. Um, and so the more that I, I figured that I was like, okay, well, I'll do this for a little while with no intended outcome or anything like that. I'll, just, I'll be Francis Tophine occasionally in performances and kind of see how that is, uh, which obviously didn't, like, I didn't learn what it was like to be trans or to be a woman through performance because it's not real um but one of the things that i really learned from it and took away from it is that that art's not real and that Mm. um that actually that's one of its powers um Mm. and that like pretending to be this is not the same as being this you know like being on a stage at like fringe arts or johnny brenda's or something is not the same as writing septa you know that's not real septa's real yeah um or like talking to people daily you know spending hours with yourself is not the same as like being able to get drunk and dress up and play music in front of people in a dimly lit Magical space, mm. um, and so kind of at this point, like, uh, it. So performances ended up becoming a little bit extra than music because I would like sew a new outfit for them. Um, I would spend a lot of time in between them. Um, all the other musicians in the live band were, belonged to other bands and had other projects, and so we would just have to like when we were going to do a show. We would get together six months before and just start practicing, get back into the swing, write new songs, whatever we did. Um, so we had, so there were like only like three or four, I think three, like full scale kind of Francis Tophine performances, um, because of the amount that they took and because music was not the forefront of my creative life. Um, but I think at this, I think at this point I actually have, like, I don't know if I'll, if I can do Francis Tophine going forward because Mm. like I've actually come out and I'm kind of like going through this process of transitioning and whatever that, wherever that ends for me, not sure. Um. But so it doesn't make sense to be fantastical about it anymore because yeah. it's actually a reality. Right. And so I'm so actually so the new songs that I want to write um, are more about that hmm. um, or, 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 or like more about an actual kind of like experience rather than a fantastical um, unreality, you know. Right. So I have this new moniker that I that I think I call it uh, Francis all the time. I think that's what. The, really? Yeah. That's inside, fantastic. Like, yeah, I think because um, yeah, it comes from a personal story. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, I like that so much. Oh, thanks. Um, I mean, for some reason, I just thought when you mentioned Francis all the time, um, it made me think about the film about Sex of the mm-hmm. Earth and the historical markers that yeah. are part of the film. Um, and they just like proliferate and that mark these really mundane things sort of everywhere. And they're just sort of statements of fact at a certain point. Yeah. Um,
2: the objective. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, The objective is plaques. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I was so fascinated by those and we're in a moment, I think where people are thinking about monumentalization Uh and historical markers Mm -hmm. Um, which may or may not have had an influence on sort of your process. well, of course it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's
2: Philly right now, especially, going been going through these conversations for like crazy. Monument Lab, Rizzo, yeah, everything.
0: yeah, yeah. Um, so, but what drew you to sort of take on that question of of the sort of the monument or the marker, and then, um, yeah,
2: yeah, I can talk about that. Yeah, um, I think that especially when I was writing these. Uh, when I was, like, bringing the concepts together for Sex of the Earth, before I started narrativizing it and um, writing a script for it, um, it was during, it was, like, the conversation of um, uh, Confederate flags and Civil War hero statues was back up again. Yeah. You know, like, we were talking about it again. Um and the town where I come from and the town where I come from media Pennsylvania has a lot of plaques like it's mm. not I don't think it's a it's not an absurd amount and they're certainly not obsessed with them in the way that the people of sex of, of this town of the borough and sex of the earth are um, but they're all over the place um, and in Philadelphia it has tons of them yes and so I was really kind of thinking well I also wanted to, there to be another um, layer to the um, the um, transference of of social and cultural information aside from the satire um the sort of like park ranger character and the um like everything all the different layers of like how we how we talk how we tell each other how to live our lives and how we tell each other about our past about our future about who we are things like that yeah um and so plaques were like ideal um and So I was thinking about all these different types of plaques and kind of like doing a bit of research and like how you actually sort of petition to get one made. Hmm. Um, I know that there was one floating around the internet for a while that wanted to put one outside of the McDonald's on Grace Ferry because that's where ODB was arrested. So like I think think every once in a while that petition would pop up. They wanted to get like an actual certified plaque. Um, And then I was thinking like, well, who else gets to decide like what plaques go where? And if it's private property, you could put whatever plaque you wanted to on private property. And then I wanted them, like, I wanted, I started really thinking about how, um, I started really thinking about who the people of the town actually were, because they're the real champions of the story. You know, like, all of the major players in the story are all these, like, people who have too much power and don't know what to do, Mm -hmm. um, who are just misinformed at every moment, either taken advantage, either exploited or just wrong. Yeah. Um, and I think that nobody in the movie genuinely has bad intentions, but everybody just doesn't know what to do, um... And so the people of the town, I kind of wanted to actually be the way that I feel about like most, the majority of Americans or Pennsylvanians is that like we really just want the same thing as everybody else, which is like, you know, happiness, security, safety for families, love, things like that, mm-hmm. and just to live our lives um, and not be too bogged down with craziness. Um, and so I wanted the people's voice to be explained kind of through some of these plaques. And so naturally, over the course of time, there would be factions in the town that would believe different things about the plaques. And that some people would believe um, that they have that the actual words engraved on them are magical incantations, um, which kind of like like the joke in there that I liked is that like whether or not a plaque what a plaque says is magical, um, it still does the same thing if it's magical or not, and that it exp- in that it influences the future by um, solidifying the past somewhere hmm. based on somebody's idea of what happened. Hmm. And so, like, you say uh, in this, you know, like, in this park was the Satterley Hospital, like, Clark Park and the Satterley Hospital, and, like, here are the things that happened here and all this stuff like that. And those are pretty objective. Like, that did happen. That was there. Right. Um, But it's, like, which things get plaqued and which things don't get commemorated. And then, like, if it's a little too subjective, then that means that everybody who walks by is inf- influenced by it and believes that in this place, this thing happened. But the only thing that they're pointing to to cite that, that actually happened was this plaque that's hanging up there. Hmm. And so in that way, like, it it mis- it's sort of like, uh, it can change the sort of, like, course of the future by misinforming the present with the wrong past or the right past or whatever. And so then there are these people in the fictional town in Sex of the Earth who start to believe that they are kind of magic and they become... A little paranoid, hmm. um, and that those people actually sort of team up with people who are just skeptical of historical commemoration and, sub- and subjectivity. These people who I saw as just like educated, like middle of the road educated people who were just like, well, I don't know who said that. Hmm. Um, but they kind of joined together. These like paranoid people and these people just a little skeptical joined together to create this faction of hyper objectivist plaques, which are, like, you know, which where you get the like site of a cornfield and like the right. birth of twins occurred here, right. and, like, the one about the bus stop, um, right. Uh, which are like, what's the point at that point, you know, like, um, which I thought was just kind of interesting. That's just like, um, you have to strike a balance between subjectivity and objectivity in in commemoration and maybe even in telling history in general, because at a certain point, like, I guess, what's the, I guess, what's the point or like, why are you telling that this happened? Because there is an action in remembering, um, because it's informing the future, um, so I just thought that was funny, and then people kind of go a little, people get maddened by the end of the movie with all the things that are happening in the town and start making even more kind of like DIY plaques that are just like, some people are trying to forget that everything has happened, and some people are just trying to move on. Um, like the one that's that, ha- that appears right outside of the fortune teller's office that I kind of imagine the fortune teller drew on the ground just in my head. Because um, I also, because like the...
0: Which says what? Not to spoiler alert. Oh
2: right, it says. Um, I I think that a story that can be spoiled is a bad story. Um, I think. Uh, it says. What does it say? It says we will, we will continue with our regularly scheduled progress asap, <laughs> and it's just written on the ground. It's the act. It's the only plaque that's not like actually kind of like, um, officially made in the town in the story, um. Because I think that with this whole conversation of of people, um, commemorating people uh and then and then it's like do we commemorate racists even if they had a lot of power or did something do we commemorate these people like to me it just seems so absurd like why do we like it seems crazy to commemorate people like hmm. why don't we commemorate um behavior why don't we commemorate the things that happened you know and we do commemorate events and stuff like that but like we should commemorate the like positive effects of what a group of people or a person did rather than the person. People are too complex and Mm. they shouldn't be like idolized, you know, like it doesn't make any sense. We idolize individuals too much already, give people too much power posthumously or while they're still alive, you know? (laughs) So it's just like the whole thing is just like, why do we, why do we make statues of people in general, you know? Yeah. Um, So that's what I was kind of like thinking. (laughs) Fantastic.
0: Um. So, I mean, my last real question is, what is next for this particular project? Hmm. Um, Are you going to continue to work on Sex of the Earth, or do you have uh, something else up your sleeve? What are you looking forward to?
2: Um, I'm going to do a bit of tweaking of the edit of Sex of the Earth, but I'm not going to do very much um, crazy work to it. Uh, I think it's pretty finished. I also just think that, like, uh, as far as my work as an artist, like... I can just get better through other projects. Yeah. Like, I don't really want to dwell on this one because <clears throat> as especially like by the time the script was finished and all of the like super fun parts which are like the researching and coming up with ideas and doing all these different things and yeah. writing once that part's over and it actually moves into production of like scheduling and building the set which is really fun, definitely and I have a lot of help from people and I love that. Um, but that part to me, like, excuse me I start to move on by then. I start writing other things, and I'm constant, like I constantly like work in a sketchbook and like write down different ideas. So I am in the writing, researching stages for a new film, which I think might be partially recorded in a series of live performances that then have some green screen work over or whatever. Um, that I don't want to talk about. Okay. yet. It's still in the works. Um, but I think, th- but it's still, it's sort of. I'm still not entirely ready to leave Pennsylvania. So. Okay. Yeah.
0: How long, when should we be looking? Like if we're checking periodically back in with you, I how guess, long do these projects take?
2: Well, so usually they're pretty quick. Usually, Like um, Sex of the Earth, I started writing, I started conceptualizing like maybe um, a, y- a little over a year ago. Okay. Um, and then finished the whole thing. Um, In the beginning of March, so like this one took maybe nine months, I guess and then we shot like the whole meat of it Production and and shooting and filming and acting was really only was like a month. So I don't know check back in a couple months (laughs) (laughs) We'll see I'm gonna take a break and work some music. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking to me I'm so excited for everyone to hear this Um, This has been again Francis Beaver. Hi. Uh, my name is Imani Roach, and this has been another installment of Art Blog Radio. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.
1: Thank you. Hi.